Good morning, everybody. It's good to be with you all. Good to be gathered with you here on this Lord's Day. And a very special and warm welcome to all of our visitors and our friends. Thankful that you've gathered with us. And as we continue in worship, I invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. John chapter 6, we come to the end of this chapter now after we've been in it for some time. And our focus for our text this morning is verse 67 through 71. But let's read from verse 60. John 6, verse 60. Let us hear the Word of God. Therefore, many of His disciples, when they heard this, said... This is a hard saying. Who can understand it? When Jesus knew in Himself that His disciples complained about this, He said to them, Does this offend you? What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where He was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray Him. And He said, Therefore I have said to you that no one can come to Me unless it has been granted to Him by My Father. From that time, many of His disciples went back and walked with Him no more. Then Jesus said to the twelve, Do you also want to go away? But Simon Peter answered Him, Lord, To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose You, the twelve? And one of You is a devil. He spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he who would betray Him, being one of the twelve. Amen. Let us pray that God would add His blessing to the preaching of His Word. Let's unite our hearts and ask God's help. Father, as we've sung this morning, the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. Your Son is our life. He is the bread given from heaven to obtain and purchase for Himself a redeemed people. It is through His gracious atonement, His active obedience and His death on the cross in which He bore the wrath for our sins. It is only through Christ and His work that we have hope this morning, that we have a foundation. We thank you for John chapter 6 and the glorious things that are spoken to sinners here. The glorious hope of the, the gospel, the freedom of grace, the free invitation for every, everyone who wills 
to come to Christ to find free mercy. And yet we also see here the unbelief and the rejection of the crowds. Father, we thank You that You have chosen us from before the foundation of the world. That we should be those whom You bless eternally by opening up our ears and our hearts to receive Jesus for who He really is, the Christ and the Son of the living God. The One who speaks the words of eternal life. The One who is true food and true drink for our souls. Father, cause Your people this morning to feed upon Christ. Cause us to be encouraged in our faith as we see Peter and the other ten here remain in their allegiance to Christ even though the crowds have walked away. We pray that we would be encouraged and give You praise for how You have sustained us and kept us from falling away. Father, bless Your people. We pray for those who are here who don't know Christ. We pray, Father, open the eyes of their heart. We pray that You'd give them ears to hear Your Word and the call of the Gospel to them to repent of sin and to believe in Christ. Be gracious to us, Father. Give us Your Spirit. We pray for greater measures that we would rightly understand Your Word and that we would have renewed affections to obey Your Word. Draw near to us, we pray, for Your glory and be the help of Your people as we continue in worship. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's begin this morning with our exposition of the text, and then we will move into our doctrine, and lastly, our application this morning. But if you have your Bible, it would be at this time would be the time to have it open in particular as we consider the exposition of verses 67 through the end of the chapter to see what God is saying and what He is teaching His people here. And so let's begin in verse 67, our exposition. We close out chapter 6 in verse 67 with these words, Then Jesus said to the twelve, Do you also want to go away? The crowds we saw last week have cut their losses. They have departed. And the twelve now are faced with this question. It's been made abundantly clear to the twelve at this point that they stand absolutely nothing to gain in terms of worldly prestige and worldly popularity if they would remain with Christ. And indeed, it's been made abundantly clear that to stay with Christ is to become a sharer and a partaker in His rejection. And so it's in this great moment of apostasy that Jesus poses this question to the twelve. Do you also want to go away? Note, Christian, Christ detains none of His followers against their will. Those who enlist in the army of Christ are those who enlist voluntarily and they must remain voluntary. Uh, remain there voluntarily. The majority, the crowns, had made their ruling. In their eyes, Jesus' cause seemed to be a failing one. They thought Jesus Himself is an incoherent leader with hard sayings. And so Jesus turns to the twelve and He says, now the question is for you, My disciples, will you also cut your losses? 
By this time, the twelve have had ample time to try Christ and to try His doctrine. And now is the time for the verdict. And Christ asks this question to elicit from them either their departure or to elicit their sincere confession of devotion. And Christian, this is a question that's posed to us. As we carry the cross, as we face the losses of what it means to take up our cross and to follow Christ, every time we are faced with the question of our perseverance, is Christ Himself enough for this? Is He worth what I'm losing? And here we're given the collective response given from the lips of Peter in verse 68. Verse 68 says, But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Peter here takes it upon himself to be the spokesman in behalf of the entire apostolic band. Uh, Matthew Henry says he does this, Peter does this not so much because he had more of Christ's ear but more because he had more tongue in himself. As we see elsewhere in the Gospels, Peter is often the one to speak first. And he professes here not only his own sentiment, but what he believes is the sentiment of the entire group. Obviously, Peter's believing the best about Judas at this point. And these words, Lord, to whom shall we go? Those are not words that are just kind of a well, Jesus, You're the best thing that we've come across thus far, and so honestly, where else would we go if we were to leave You? But rather, these words express a heart, Peter's heart and the other ten, they express a heart that has been decisively severed from the world and yoked to Christ. They express a heart, unlike the crowds, that had been taught by grace, Remember verse 45 of chapter 6, they shall all be taught of God. These are the words that show a heart that has come to see that there is nothing but emptiness everywhere we look except for when we look to Christ. To whom shall we go? Christian, think about that question. To whom shall we go? Shall we go back to the world and all of its temptations and its allurements? Peter is standing here thinking, I can't do that after the glories of heaven that I've seen in Christ. Should we go back to sin? That will only lead to death. And Anyways, I can't do that because ever since I met Christ, I'm no longer at home with sin. Should we go back to the scribes and Pharisees and their traditions of men? That will only lead us to bondage. And even if we return to Moses, Moses will only point us back to you, Christ, because he wrote of you. Peter is saying here, Lord, there is nothing in this world except broken cisterns. But you and your word we have found to be a fountain of living water. Matthew Henry notes to the hypocrite thinking of turning his back completely on Christ. Matthew Henry says, let him who finds fault with the Christian religion first find a better one before they quit it. Christian, 
If you have, by the grace of God, been converted, been made alive, this is you. I know I am just like you. Every single one of us, true child of God though we be, we have stumblings. We have falls. We have seasons of discouragement that weigh us down. But to the One who has truly by grace tasted and seen that the Lord is good, there is always that ember of faith slowly burning in our hearts that makes it an absolutely unthinkable thing to contemplate leaving off Christ altogether. And even if you think and feel at times, Lord, I'm not comfortable. And honestly, I'm not even that happy with how my life is going. The true believer knows, and yet, life would be infinitely worse if it were a life without Christ. Meanwhile, for the hypocrite, the hypocrite walks away like these crowds the moment it's convenient for them. The moment it suits their desires and their pursuits in life. Like Orpah, we read Ruth 1. As soon as Naomi pleads with the women, go back, what do I have for you? Orpah takes that as the opportunity she needed. I'm going back to my God's. That's the hypocrite. But the Christian is like Ruth who clings to Naomi. We cling to Christ. Where you will go, I will go. Where you die, there I will die. Your people shall be My people. And it doesn't matter what I'm leaving behind. If I get Christ, every loss is worth it. Peter says, not only to whom shall we go, he then adds, you have the words of eternal life. Even though, remember, at this point in the, in the apostles' discipleship and learning, even though there are many things that are still a mystery to Peter and the others, they knew that these words, these are the words of God. And it's very instructive for us Christians. Think back on the entirety of chapter 6. What was it that attracted the crowds to Christ? It was His miracles. In particular, it was the miracles that served their carnal appetites. And what was it that repelled the crowds from Christ? It was the words of Christ. The hard sayings. But for Peter here and the other ten, it's the exact opposite. The very thing that repelled the crowds is the very thing that held and kept Peter. And the question is why? And the simplest answer is because Peter had been given ears to hear. As Jesus has been proclaiming to these crowds, Peter is one for whom it is true. He, it had been given to him by the Father to come to Christ. It had been given to Peter to hear Christ's words and to know not these are hard sayings, but these are words which are spirit and life. And Christians, so it is with every true believer. Though we cannot explain every mystery, though there are things that are obscure to us that we do not understand, yet we know these are the words of eternal life. 
And therefore we must, as Matthew Henry says, we must live and die by these words. And then Peter goes further and he confesses Jesus' uh, Jesus's exalted identity in verse 69. Verse 69, Peter adds this, Also, we have come to believe and know that You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Where the crowd saw and heard a delusional man, Peter here, by the grace of God, because of the Spirit of God illuminating his heart, Peter sees more deeply and profoundly into the matter. This is not a man who's delusional. This is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And notice Peter's assurance. He says, we have come to believe and know that this is the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's not just a um, somewhat of a nervous, you know, Lord, we did hear something like this about You that You might be the promised one to come. Or we're starting to wonder if You might be the promised one to come. But it's an assertion of confidence and assurance. We know. Because Christ had proved, had proven Himself over and over to the eleven. And God had borne witness in their hearts by His Spirit, this is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Just like the road to Emmaus at the end of Luke's Gospel, did not our hearts burn within us when He opened up to us the Scriptures? Christian, you have been, by the grace of God, convinced of the exact same thing Peter was convinced of. Christ has become to you the wisdom of God. Even in hard times and confusing times and tempting times, you go back again and again to the first principles and you are given peace that I know in whom I have believed. I have an assurance that is given to me through the Word of God and by the Spirit of God that this is none other than the Son of God. And Christian, it's a good idea, by the way, in times of temptation like the apostles were facing here, it's a good thing in those times to remind ourselves of our first and most basic principles like Peter did and stick to them. There are times that many things may seem uncertain, they may seem off, and it's at those times where we need to remember, though I do not necessarily understand everything and I may not understand the hand of God in providence, I know in whom I have believed. And I know my guide. And then Jesus, perhaps unexpectedly, responds to Peter on a melancholy note. While Peter and the other ten knew this and they believed this, Jesus reveals here at the end of chapter 6 not all of them knew it. Or at least not all of them have, had believed it to the saving of their souls. Verse 70 and 71. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And one of you is a devil. And then John comments, He spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he who would betray him, being one of the twelve. Peter had undertaken to speak on behalf of the whole group. And 
while Jesus does not here rebuke and condemn Peter for his charity, he does tacitly correct Peter's confidence. Peter and the other apostles were thoroughly fooled by the hypocrisy of Judas. Judas was able to keep up the apostolic appearance. They didn't know that he was secretly putting his hand into the money bag to help himself. They didn't know that he was in his heart dealing treacherously with Christ. And yet, Judas did not for a moment fool Christ. Christ says to them, did I not choose you the twelve? These are not just the crowds he's talking about. It's not a surprise that some amongst the crowds would not close with Christ. But Jesus says, these are the twelve that I handpicked for apostleship, and yet one of you is a devil. One of you is my enemy who will do worse things than turn your back on me. You will betray me to my enemies. And thus, John concludes this section, as we know it, chapter 6 of his Gospel. A note of rejection and betrayal, even from within the twelve. That concludes our exposition section. Let us consider now and turn our attention to our doctrine deduced. Christian, how are we now instructed by this text doctrinally? What doctrines are there embedded in this text that help us understand God, understand ourselves, and understand the Christian life so that we might live more fruitfully for the glory of God? And I have two things I want to open up. And I have actually managed to separate doctrine from application this week. And we'll open up the same two things under application next. But two things. Number one, the first thing that we are instructed in here is that we are taught... In this passage, God's gracious preservation of His true saints. Doctrine number one. We are taught in this passage of God's gracious preservation and upholding of all His true saints. Christian, think about it. There is a stark contrast we're supposed to uh, see between everything that has gone before in chapter 6 and this very ending last four or five verses. As the crowns have walked away, they've balked at Christ's words, they are offended, they think He's a fool. Christian, what is the decisive reason that as the crowds have gone that direction and made that decision, what is the decisive reasons that Peter and the other ten are still hanging on to Christ for dear life? The reason is God's gracious act of preservation of all those whom He draws to His Son. That that is the ultimate explanation here. True believers cannot and will not and do not ultimately depart from Christ. Because, as Paul says in Romans chapter 8, all those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. Not a single saint drops out of that unbreakable golden chain. And Christian, this right here at the end of chapter 6, 
This is the glorious capstone, if you will, of the sovereign grace that we have been seeing all throughout this chapter. That not only do we begin the Christian life due to the sovereign, gracious act of God drawing us to Christ, Christ, but also here we see we will finish the Christian life because of the sovereign, gracious act of God. Christian, we need to understand, understand this and be clear. Judas here is not a believer that falls from saving grace. Some people believe that and they, they argue that because in John chapter 17, verse 12, Jesus says in His high priestly prayer, He says to His Father, of all those You have given Me, I have not lost one except the son of perdition that the Scriptures be fulfilled. And some will appeal to that and argue that see, Judas really was a genuine believer and this proves that genuine believers are not held safe in the hands of a gracious God. That's not how we're supposed to understand John 17. We need to understand John 17 in light of passages like this that explicitly comment on what is happening here with Judas. Judas is a false apostle who falls not from a state of true grace, but from his exalted position as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, which should have rendered better fruit than it did. I think that's one of the reasons Jesus calls him a devil, is that he had such a high exalted station and still he betrays the one he should have served and loved. And Jesus makes this abundantly clear here, where he clearly separates Judas from the rest of the apostles. Peter, on behalf of the twelve, says, we have come to know this. And Jesus says, not all of you have. There's one of you who will betray me. Jesus does the same thing in John chapter 13, verse 10, when Jesus is washing the apostles' feet. And He says to them, after He's washed their feet, He says, you are clean, but not all of you. Judas is a warning about hypocrisy, not an example of God failing to hold fast and keep His own. And Christian, isn't this good news? That the principle of grace... This should invigorate our confidence in God's keeping power and and enlivening power. That the principle of grace God has begun in a believer is an inextinguishable grace that cannot be put out and will not be put out even though all the gates of hell should break uh, and the armies of hell should break out against it. That's true of every single believer. The grace of God, even in the weakest believer, the believer who has doubts, the believer who has struggles, the believer who is overcome with temptation, that grace that is at work within them is a grace so effectual that even if he were the last Christian on earth with no Christian companionship, and though the armies of hell should rage against him, he will not turn his back on his God. 
Yes, genuine believers can have great falls. Peter's an example of that. But their faith will not utterly fail because it rests on the power of an omnipotent God to uphold it. One of my favorite scenes from Pilgrim's Progress in the book, um, I'm not sure if this is in the movie, is where Christian is taken to this room. I've said this before. He's taken to a room and he sees a fire burning against the wall. And there is a, a sinister figure, and it's obviously the devil, who is continuously trying to douse and pour water on this fire, trying to put it out. And the more water the devil pours on it, not only does the fire not go out, but it, with every dousing of water, the flames get higher and hotter. And Christian, pilgrim, curious as to what could explain this, he takes a peek around the other side of the wall to see what could be the explanation for this. And when he looks around the other side of the wall, he sees another man who is constantly pouring in from the other side oil, which Bunyan calls the oil of Christ's grace. And we all know what happens when you throw water on an oil fire. It doesn't succeed in putting the fire out. The fire gets bigger. And, and that was Bunyan's picture of how Christ is on the one hand behind us the entire time, even imperceptibly to us, pouring out the balm of His grace, the oil of His grace, so that no matter how much the devil and this world would seek to put out the fire of faith in our hearts, it will do nothing but grow. Christian, what a, what a blessed doctrine the doctrine of perseverance and preservation is to the Christian. Right, amazing grace. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Twas grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. This, this doctrine doesn't make the Christian careless, not rightly understood and rightly applied. It doesn't make the Christian negligent or presumptuous. But rather, it gives the Christian that comforting assurance that he needs or she needs so that they know as they make this pilgrimage towards the celestial city, they know I will persevere and I will get there because my God is with me to preserve me. And He will never abandon me. That's the first thing that we're instructed in is God's gracious preservation of all His true saints as we see it in Peter's confession here. It brings us to the second uh, doctrine this morning. Very simple, but vital for us. True believers cling to the Word of Christ as their life. True believers cling to the Word of Christ as their very life. These words, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. That, that is the expression of every genuine Christian. Even, and I would say especially, when the Christian feels that he is languishing, when he feels that he is tempted and he's assaulted with doubts, he clings fast with all his might to the Word of Christ to sustain him. And Christian, listen to me. I know, and I thought of this because this is something that I thought even as I prepared this section. 
I know it can be so easy to hear this, and you probably know where I'm going, and it's so easy to just hear it and think, okay, here we go again. He's going to hammer on the disciplines. And I already know this. I know I need to read my Bible. Right? Brothers and sisters, listen to me. Hearing the voice of your shepherd through his word is more than a, just a discipline for discipline's sake. It is literally your life. Think about it. Is feeding your body every day a discipline? In one sense it is. You could view it that way. But it's much more than a discipline. Because what you're doing in feeding your body is you're giving it what it needs. And if you starve yourself for days on end physically, you can't do that and expect to be healthy. And spiritually speaking, for the Christian, not listening, not actively listening to the voice of the shepherd is just like the sheep running away from the voice of the shepherd. And you know as well as I, good things never come to the sheep who shuts out the shepherd from his life. They wind up in thickets and ditches and surrounded by wolves. Brothers and sisters, this, this idea that Peter encapsulates here, you have the words of eternal life. This is not just a modern imposition on Christianity and the Christian life. This is the biblical Christian life, both for Old Testament and New Testament saint. Living by faith upon the Word of Christ. We could, we could just read Psalm 119. I'll give you a few verses from Psalm 119. Verse 28, the psalmist says, My soul melts with heaviness. Christian, how often have you felt your soul melts from heaviness? And he says, Strengthen me according to your word. Verse 41, Let your mercies also come to me, Lord, your salvation according to your word. Verse 50, this is my comfort in my affliction. Your word has given me life. And we could go on and on and on with Psalm 119. How about Psalm 130? Psalm 130 is one of, it's a particularly dear psalm to me, I think to many Christians, because it's a psalm that is very relatable for the Christian. It's a psalm in which the psalmist has been overcome with a sense of his own guilt and his own iniquity. O oh Lord, if you should mark iniquities, O oh Lord, who could stand? He, he finds himself in a state of almost stammering before God and trembling with great conviction over his sin. He feels that God has left him and abandoned him and forsaken him. And he's watching and he's watching and he's waiting for the Lord to return and he hasn't come. And what does the psalmist say he does while he waits? He says in verse 5, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in His Word do I hope. In His Word do I hope. Joel Beakey tells the story 
I believe it was one of his own colleagues, so don't quote me on some of the exact details. I think it was a fellow pastor of his who called Joel Beakey right as he was about to leave for a trip, and this pastor was having a crisis of faith. And he called Beakey and he said, I need to meet, I need to talk, I don't even know if I'm a Christian. And Beakey replied, I can't meet right now, I'm literally just about to walk out the door for a trip, but promise me this, every day while I'm away, read your Bible and we will meet as soon as I get back. And when Beakey got back, I think it was a couple weeks later, he walked into his office and he found a little note from that pastor and it said, no need to meet, all is well with my soul. That is the stabilizing voice of the shepherd to speak peace and life into the hearts of his languishing people. Lord, you have the words of eternal life. Feed me. That's the the prayer and the experience of the Christian when the Lord answers that prayer is that I desire to be fed on your testimonies and how faithful the Lord is to feed his sheep. Paul says, let the word of Christ dwell in your hearts richly. The Christian seeks the Lord in his word. Lord, strengthen me in the inner man. And it's amazing. Oftentimes, Christian, you can relate to this. Oftentimes, when we go to God's word, seeking to meet with God, oftentimes he meets with us and he ministers to us not because we went to the Bible as some sort of reference book trying to find the exact answer to the problems that we're currently wrestling with. Sometimes we go to the Bible that way. We need wisdom on this subject or this subject. But more often than not, God meets with us and He ministers, ministers to us simply because we spent time with God. And you might read a parable or a chapter that you think this has almost nothing to do with what I with what I'm going through, and this certainly isn't going to help me, and this isn't what I need. And you go into it with that heart, and you walk out of it with an entirely different heart, realizing that's exactly what I needed. Because even though it didn't answer the exact questions I'm wrestling with, it addressed my main need to be with the shepherd and to hear the voice of the shepherd. To be reminded of his goodness, his attributes, To be reminded, even like these, these apostles here, sometimes we need these simple reminders. I, I have come to believe that this is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And we walk away with those first principles fortified in our hearts and our minds, and we walk away realizing that's enough for me right now. That by itself is manna enough to feed me this day. That brings us to our application as we make our way towards a close. Our application. And I want to just take those two things that we opened up doctrinally and now apply them to us, Christian. And so, application number one, Christian. Let the doctrine of God's gracious preservation encourage your heart. That was the first thing we considered, God's gracious preservation of of His saints. But Christian, you need to appropriate that doctrine and that promise by faith. 
And so, the application is let that doctrine, which is true, regardless of how we feel, encourage your heart. Christian, there there is a balance needed in how we apply the Word of God to our hearts. And how we apply different portions of God's Word to our hearts. For instance, this is the main thing that I'm getting at here. There are, no doubt, appropriate times and occasions for exhortations like Paul gives when he says, examine yourselves to see whether you be in the faith or not. Right? Obviously, it wouldn't be in the Bible if there weren't appropriate times for that kind of exhortation to be given. However, this is where we need to be careful in how we apply God's Word to our hearts. However, there's a reason for those exhortations. When Paul says that, it doesn't just come out of nowhere, and it's not just, um, it doesn't take place in a vacuum. There's a reason why he says that to Corinth and similar things to Galatia, but not, for instance, to the Philippians or the, the Ephesians. In other words, Paul isn't just randomly throwing out challenges to otherwise faithful Christians saying, by the way, you should always be shaking in your boots as to whether or not you're actually a fake Christian. And the same thing is true here with Jesus. When Jesus says to the twelve, one of you is a devil, the reason for Him saying that was to challenge Judas's hypocrisy. And Judas knew he was a hypocrite. Judas knew he was a devil. It wasn't said by Christ in order to destroy any ground of assurance for the other eleven. But sometimes, and I know this just pastorally, sometimes sincere Christians are quicker to latch on to the warnings against hypocrisy than they are to receive God's comforting words about His power to uphold the Christian. And I, I get that. I understand that. Heaven and hell are real. We don't want to be deceived. We've seen, as recently as last week, hypocrisy can often look very close to the real thing. And we know we don't want to play, play fast and loose with God. I don't want to be a, hip, a counterfeit. I understand that. And yet, always focusing on examining on whether I'm a counterfeit can actually hinder us from receiving the gracious promises that God intends for His people to rest in. I know that challenge in my preaching. I know. I know this just from talking. You're you're my people. We talk about struggles. I know that there are some of you very, and this isn't a bad thing necessarily, very tender, sensitive conscience who by all outward appearances, at least speaking as your pastor, as far as I can tell, you're Peter here. You you know Peter's confession here is my confession. You give evidence of God's grace in your heart. You love Christ. You're committed to Christ. You love His Word. Yes, like Peter, you still have remaining corruption, but you also share Peter's faith. 
And if I were to say to you right now, you know what, just turn your back on Christ and go back to your former life, you would immediately say, I could never do that. I could never turn my back on the Christ that I've come to know. All of that points in the direction of God's preservation of you up to this point. Right? Those are evidences of grace. But oftentimes, because of tender consciences, you can see all that for a moment when others point that out to you, but then the moment you read words like, one of you is a devil, your proclivity is to be more inclined to let all that other evidence get eclipsed and suddenly you think and you're worried, I might be a Judas. But here's my question. Is that the right application of the Word of God to your heart? Why are you concerned that you might be a Judas? Right? If we're going to be concerned about something, it needs to be because we actually have reason to be concerned about it. And now, if you had some secret list of secret horrendous sins that you've just been playing the hypocrite on for years and you've been trying to conceal who you really are, I understand you have good reason to be concerned. You might be a Judas. But for most of you, that's not the case. You might be a sinner just like I am, but you're not a hypocrite. You confess your sins. You deal honestly with your sins. You're open about them. You seek the help of your brothers and sisters. You go to Christ for grace. Every time you fall down, you get back up again. And you say, to whom shall I go? And you go back again to Christ. You have conviction over your your sin. My brother or my sister, those are evidences that God is preserving you. Otherwise, what are we going to say? Because I sin, I'm robbed of any right to ever claim the promises of God? And I'm just forever sentenced to a life of wondering if I might secretly be a Judas? Brother and sister, apply biblical logic to that thinking. Jesus says in John chapter 10, we'll get there, that no one is able to snatch any of Christ's people out of his Father's hand. Paul says, Romans 8, nothing, he says, I am convinced that nothing in life or in death or in heaven or upon earth will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Now, ask this question, Christian, doubting Christian, struggling Christian. Who are those promises written for? Who is supposed to claim them? They they were not written for the holy angels. They were written for sinners saved by the grace of God, just like Peter and Paul who wrote those very promises. They're written for sinners saved by grace just like you. Who, yes, this is obvious. None of us deny this, and we're the first to own it. Do we fail? Yes, we fail. Do we sin against God? Yes, we do. But in our heart of hearts, 
You know that it's true of you that every single time I get back up and I say, Lord, to whom shall I go? You have the words of eternal life. Christian, if you're here and you can say, and to the hypocrite who may be in our midst, you can fool God, you cannot, or you can fool me, you cannot fool God. Christ sees and penetrates directly into the heart of Judas, just like he does yours. God knows your secret thoughts. Christian, that's good news for you that God knows your secret thoughts. Because if you're here and you can say with sincerity and Judgment Day honestly, Peter's confession here is my confession. And you can say honestly, I am not hypocritically hiding a life of sin from God and from brothers and sisters in the church. And you can say, I am not dealing treacherously with Christ or with His people. And you know it's true of me. I look to Christ imperfectly, but I do look to Christ for grace. I trust Him alone to be the one who brings me to glory, who presents me before the Father blameless and holy. And Christian, unless there is some good legitimate reason for why you're obviously a hypocrite, listen to me, Don't fail to give God glory for the evidence of His grace in your heart. Don't toss away the very precious promises that Christ has bought for people just like you just because the devil accuses you. Of course the devil accuses you. He is called the accuser of the brethren. The brethren, Christians. But the devil doesn't have the last word. His accusations fall in the light of Christ's cross. And so Christian, take God at His word and apply it appropriately to your own case. It's not presumptuous to apply God's incredible promises and say, this is true of me by the grace of God. That's not arrogant. It's arrogant if you abuse the Word of God and you abuse grace. But for the genuine Christian who lays hold of the glorious promises that God has made to His children, that's what faith is. We take God at His Word. And so Christian, let this doctrine encourage your heart. That brings us to the second thing more briefly. Second application. Christian... Live by the Word of Christ. Live by the Word of Christ. I don't, this very moment, neither does John or Gary, we don't have a perfect pulse on every one of our people in this room right now on how devotion and communion with God has gone this last week. But I know this. A Christian is most stable and most assured and most happy when he has fed upon the Word of Christ. That's indisputable. Because just as God created us physically by His Word, so He caused the new birth by His Word, and we are sustained by His Word. And sometimes it's amazing... It's just that one promise. I already mentioned this a a bit. 
Sometimes it's just that one promise that you didn't even know you needed. Or that attribute of God that you didn't realize you needed to be reminded of that feeds your soul. God gives us the bread from heaven that our souls need through His Word. Christian, His Word is what comforts God's people, encourages God's people, revives God's people, gives strength to God's people, strengthens assurance, strengthens resolve against sin. We could go on and on about the different things the Bible says the Bible does. It's the Word of God that fills our hearts with thoughts of God and His glory such that it squeezes out the allurement of the world and it causes us to be more guarded against sin, more full of heaven on earth so that we serve God faithfully with a good conscience. And Christian, who who of us is going to say, I don't need any more of that? I think it was J.C. Ryle who said, a man long before he falls in public, falls in private by leaving off his private duties and and devotion. Believer, Christ's Word is of more value and importance to us than even our own physical food. Jesus said, modeling His commitment to, to the Word of God, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And let me say this too. Even good books about the Bible and that help us understand the Bible are not meant to be a replacement for the unique place that the Bible ought to occupy in the Christian's life. Right? And you, you know that's coming from someone who I have many books besides the Bible, and I read many books besides the Bible. They are useful. We should give God praise for them and be thankful for them, but they are not meant to be a substitute or a replacement for the pure milk of God's Word. Spurgeon said, visit many good books, but live in the Bible. That should be the way that we live our lives. Visit, to your heart's content, many good books, but live in the Bible. Live in Christ's Word. And Christian, I'll say this in closing. I know that that's going to look different for all of us. And we've got to be careful about not rigidly binding each other's consciences to rules that aren't actually commanded by God. Or, equally as bad, beating ourselves up because, well, that person... I only read one, I struggle to get through one chapter a day <laughs> because every time I go to pick it up, there's a diaper that needs to be changed or you know, something spills or someone needs something to eat. And we beat ourselves up because that person, they read 10 chapters a day, they said. Listen to me, Christian. Your context has bearing on this and what this looks like. Your um, station in life has bearing on what this looks like. Some of you have the blessing of extended time to not only read the Scriptures, but have extended deep studies. And for others of you, it's not going to be so much the breadth of your reading, but the intentionality of your reading. And 
taking away something, even if it's one verse, one promise, you're, you're taking that morsel of bread that, Lord, this is something I'm going to memorize today because I can't because of my other duties, unfortunately, just sit here with an open Bible. I'm going to take that and I'm going to memorize it and I'm going to mull it over and meditate upon it. The person who lays hold of one promise and chews on it and meditates upon it and applies it and resolves to live obediently to it, they can actually be much more spiritually fed upon the Word of Christ than the person who reads ten chapters but doesn't do that. This isn't a cookie cutter, it needs to always look this way or it will always look that way. And it isn't a contest. It's a matter of John 15. Using Jesus' analogy, we are branches who have no life in ourselves and we have our life by our connection to the vine who is Christ. And the appointed means of maintaining that communion with God, the appointed means is through the Word of God. Christian, we need God. We need Christ more than we even know. Every hour, Lord, I need Thee. Christian, There, and you'll discover this soon enough. Don't do this, but if you were to leave off your Bible for a time, this will become evident to you. There is nothing in heaven or on earth that can be an adequate substitute for Christ. And the true Christian will find that out very, very quickly. We need Christ and His words which are the words of eternal life. And so Christian, let us all be exhorted. May God by His grace renew. He answer our prayers for this very thing to renew our vigor vigor for a closer walk with God, closer communion with Christ through His Word. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for Your Word to us. Thank You for John 6. Um, Father, we praise You for the glorious eternal Gospel and the salvation that You have wrought and accomplished in Christ. We thank You, Father, that it is a salvation that has its beginning and its end in God and not in us that it is Your power that worked within us at first to bring us to Christ, and it will be that same power and grace that will bring us safely home. Father, we thank You that there is such a thing in Your Word and in our experience as those who do not fall away from Christ. We thank You that it is not left ultimately up to our will, but up to Your power that we are weak, but You are strong. And that though we may stumble, we may trip, we may fall, You do not let us fall utterly. We praise You that You have proven this reality throughout the centuries, that You have always had a church on earth 
that you've never abandoned one of your people to their enemies. You've never left them eternally in the darkness. You do bring trials, Father, for good reason and from infinite wisdom. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. And we praise You for that this morning. We pray that we would let that invigorate us to press on as we enter a new week, the first day of the week. We ask that we would be those who are renewed in our allegiance to Christ and His Lordship. Cause us to feel more and more our having been severed from the world. Cause us to have a full devotion to Christ. Cause us to feed upon His Word. Cause us to seek after Him. Even as the deer pants for the water, we pray that we would hunger and thirst for Christ. Father, bless our, the remainder of our Lord's Day, we pray. We pray that You'd be with all of our new incoming members. We thank You for the blessing of new members, hearing their testimonies of how You have worked in their lives. We pray that You'd be with them, encourage their hearts as we have our hearts encouraged by hearing of Your grace in their lives. We ask, Father, bless our meal together now, our fellowship time together. We pray that You would give us thankful hearts for all the physical sustenance You give to us, but also and even more so the spiritual sustenance and Your faithfulness that never fails. Bless us as Your people, we pray. Dismiss us with Your blessing. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.